secure financial advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. Alan Klopine, he's a CPA. Hey, what do you feel about risk tolerance questionnaires, Alan? I guess you're probably asking in relationship, is that enough to fill out and then know what your investment strategy should be? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, you know, I think most people might have heard of this, but I guess let's explain what a risk tolerance sure. questionnaire is. Is that, let's say, if you want to invest your money, okay, some of you have probably filled one of these things out before. It's a questionnaire. And it's trying to gauge your risk tolerance. So it will say, how would you feel if your investments did this? How would you feel if this were to do that? And I think it's all objective kind of information. Yeah, and you've got you strongly agree, some, somewhat some agree, <laughs> neutral, disagree, strongly disagree. And <laughs> right. So you fill this out depending upon your mood of the day. And it goes in a little computer and then out comes this score. Ah, you got a 42. You're between 40 and 50, so you should be aggressive. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I was teaching a class at San Diego State this week. And I was talking about basically how to create income like we're talking about today. And I asked the students to see, all right, well, how do you go about picking your investments? How do you go about formulating your overall portfolio to make sure that the portfolio is suited for your specific goals? That's a fair question. Mm -hmm. And just to get a gauge. And I would say most people said, well, no, I mean, you got to fill out the risk tolerance questionnaire. Oh, so yeah. was so, one individual. So, so, okay, so students are saying that because yeah. they've, they've done it before. Sure. And I was like, okay, well, uh, let's say for those of you that have a pension, if CalPERS, for instance, you're about to retire, you don't fill out a risk tolerant questionnaire to your pension company. You know what I mean? Right. They're going to give you a fixed income stream. They're managing the assets. They're looking at actuarial tables and f from, all right, here's this pool of money that we currently have that we're managing. Here's the amount of people that need income at this given time, right? And here's the amount of money that needs to be distributed from this pool of money each and every month to make sure that these pension holders get their income. Yeah, whatever benefits were promised. Right. So what are they doing? Are they saying, hey, what's your mood for risk? Uh, no. No, they're not at all. Some people will say, I don't want any risk. Or, yeah, I, I, I have high tolerance for risk. Just keep it coming. Yep, until the market goes down. Then, no, I don't have any tolerance for this. R right. You know, And so I think we need to engage in a different conversation. Because when you fill out those tolerance questionnaires, it's maxing out your capacity for risk, first of all. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So the portfolio that this computer is going to kick out for you is going to be your max tolerance. Because if you look at it like this, if you only need to pull out 1% out of your portfolio, how much risk really should you be taking then? Yeah, you don't need to take a lot unless your goal is to build up your estate for your kids, grandkids, charity, whatever it may be. Great point. Yep. Because you can look at someone's portfolio that's in their 60s, and they should have maybe 70% bonds, 30% stocks to shoot it for a target rate of return based on their goals. Right. But you could run into an 80-year-old, and the proper por portfolio for them should be 80% stocks, 20% bonds. Yeah, because they have plenty of income, and they're building for the next generation. Right. They want to maximize the wealth for their grandchild. Right. So it's based on their life expectancy. Right. So they, th 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 you can afford to take on a little so bit I, more I risk. Guess, I guess the point, and I'm agreeing with you, Joe, is uh, 
it's some different questions. It's like, uh, well, what does retirement look like for you? How much do you want to spend? What kind of lifestyle? Do you, what extras do you want? What kind of fixed income do you have to work with? What assets do you have? All right, now let's start putting this together. Now let's work backwards and figure out what rate of return do you need. We can call that a family index, right? What's your family index to make your retirement work? All right, so if we know that, then we can design a portfolio that has the best chance for achieving that that's the safest possible portfolio. Right, so Al might say, you know what, Joe? This is what I'm looking at. I want to make sure that I can produce from my portfolio $40,000 from that portfolio because I have another $50,000 coming in from my real estate. I have another thirty, forty thousand dollars coming in from Social Security. And you know what? I'm still gonna work part time and generate thirty thousand dollars of income. But you know, my goal is two hundred thousand and I'm guessing if all that added up to that, but whatever. <laughs> right. So you know, you kind of work it that way. Right. And you're saying, okay, well here, if you want forty thousand dollars from the overall portfolio, all right, so let's look at that portfolio and say, all right, well what's the least amount of risk that you should be taking to make sure that you can maintain that forty thousand dollars over your lifetime. But then that's not the end of the discussion there, too, because then Al might say to me and says, okay, well, here, Joe, you know, I got two sons, and I want to make sure that I can leave a legacy for my two sons. So I want to have X amount of dollars that I want to have. I don't want to spend that money down. I want to make sure that that passes on. So then that portfolio is going to look a little bit different if Al said, you know what, I have two kids, and guess what? They're fine. I want to make sure that Annie and I have the best retirement ever, and if I die and we bounce that last check, I'm fine with that. Right, so it all has to do with these types of conversations. Right, and then and you get once you have that laid out, right? Then you can say, all right, well, let's. All right, so here's the portfolio that you should be in, given you know the the, the highest probability of success. Then with that, let's test it. Let's see how your gut's going to react when this, if the market were to correct 20, 30%, this is what that portfolio is going to look like. What are you going to do? Yeah. How, how do you feel about that? And so that's when you start talking about what's your tolerance after you've gone through all the other stuff. Right. And to be honest with you, I don't really care what you're going to say because you hired me to be your advisor. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, uh, if the market's down 30%, I can't handle it. No, there's no way. It's like, okay. Well, then you can't be in stocks. And if you can't be in stocks, everything that we just said is not going to come true. So let's go back here. Now you're going to stay in cash, um, bonds, T-bills, treasuries. Right. So so then. So now you have to, now here's, I can't get you the 40000 You're yeah. going to have to settle for this and the kids are going to have, well, no, I don't want that. Okay. Well, well know, then we got to we got to compromise. Right, here. right. Let's look at education. Let's educate you. Let's right. uh, understand right. how things work, how risk works, risk and expected return and everything else in between. Makes sense. With these risk tolerance questionnaires just drive me nuts. It's like, all right, well, here, I think I should be in this portfolio. And we talked about earlier in the show, too, of like, all right, well, here, if you, you look at rules of thumb, when it comes time to take distributions, of course your emotions are going to run wild when markets go down. We know this. It's going to happen. But the fact of the matter is the most successful investors understand that markets will go down and they have a strategy of what they're going to do when they go down. Do you have a strategy Right now, when markets are going to go down, I'm telling you, it's going to happen, but we don't know when. I want to make sure that you're prepared because if you're like most people, you have more questions than you have answers about any of this. Like, for instance, um, you might have a question on how long will my savings last in retirement or how much can I afford to withdraw every year to ensure that I don't run out of money? 
How can I make my money generate the most income while still minimizing my risk? How and when is the most optimal time to take my Social Security benefits? How could I potentially reduce my taxes, investment fees, and expenses? And how can I pass along more money to my kids and grandkids? And we're going to bring Larry Swedro in next segment, so you don't want to miss that. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Back at you here. Uh, show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner. Welcome to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. I'm with my good friend Larry Swedro. Uh, Larry, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to be with you, Joe. Hey, um, we were talking uh, before we got on the air, and you've been doing a little bit more research when it comes to the active versus passive and kind of taking a look at a longer time frame. I got a two-part question for you is that I, we've discussed for years that an active managed approach, I guess timing markets and picking stocks doesn't necessarily pan out, or the, the probability of success on that is fairly low. Um, and the proof is there. But also, when you take a look at how, I guess, you and I would advise a client to say, maybe you want to tilt a portfolio more towards um, smaller companies in value companies because they have a higher expected return. Wouldn't you argue that that is also um, an active type of strategy that we are seeing that, that those asset classes would outperform? Okay, so let's uh, take the two questions. Let's go real quickly over this active versus passive uh, debate. And in this uh, debate, we need to define what we mean by active-passive so we're all on the same page. And uh, I think that not everyone will make the same definitions, but I personally like the one uh, proposed by Gene Fama, Nobel Prize winner, uh, and he said he defined active as those who are engaged in individual stock selection and or market timing. So uh, that's the beginning definition I like. So active managers who do individual stock selection and or market timing, you then could compare their performance to r appropriate risk-adjusted benchmarks. So if someone's an active stock picker of small stocks, you would compare it to the S&P 500. You compare it to a small cap index, for example. Uh, so the evidence there is this. 20 years ago, about 20% of active managers were generating statistically significant alpha or outperformance against those appropriate benchmarks. So you had a one in five chance uh, to find that active manager, but that's pre-tax. After tax, the numbers get about cut in half. So that's a loser's game, you know, because the vast majority of people are playing are losing. And unfortunately, for those who have chosen that game, that 20% figure today, even pre-tax, has collapsed down to 2%. And that's the story of my latest book, The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. So now you've got 50 to 1 odds against you, uh, even before taxes, and about 100 to 1 after taxes of generating statistically significant alpha. So that's why we say it's the loser's game. It's not that you can't win. Every year we can identify about a third of the managers who do it in a year basis. You get out to 10 years now, and those numbers collapse pretty close now, getting close to the zero line. So that, that takes the first question. So let's address this issue of, you know, if you invest and build portfolios owning more small caps than the market does or more value stocks than the market does, you're being active. So let's first understand that 
the alternative is to own a total stock market fund. Let's say in the U.S., a Vanguard total stock market fund. the U.S., you could own a total international fund. And those funds own small and value stocks. A total uh, Vanguard fund would own about 20% U.S. Uh, small caps, and about 20% of it would be value stocks. Now, let's say you and I want to tilt our portfolio so it owns maybe half the portfolio is small and value stocks. That is clearly an active decision in terms of your asset allocation. Any decision to own any asset allocation that's different from the market is an active decision in terms of your strategy. Now the question comes in, how do I implement that strategy? Now, there are two ways to implement that strategy of being tilted to small and value. One would be to own active managers who try to do stock picking and market timing. Maybe they even jump in and out of small caps when they think maybe large caps will do better or there'll be a bear market and they should go to cash. But instead of owning all the small stocks, they buy the 50 ones they think will be the best. Uh, and our strategy, which is basically on all the stocks that fit this definition. And uh, that I would call passive in terms of the implementation of the strategy. And for those interested, uh, the fund family that we use mostly, and I believe your firm does as, mo uh, as well, is a fund family called Dimensional Fund Advisors. And at the end of last year, I took a look at the average ranking for their major mutual funds, both U.S. and international. And in the Morningstar database, which includes survivorship bias, so it only includes the funds that have lasted the full 15 years, which means it's missing maybe as many as half of the funds that existed during the period and disappeared because they did so poorly, investors yanked their money, or they were merged out of existence. The average ranking, even pre-tax, for DFA's funds was 21st percentile. So that means they outperformed pre-tax almost 80% of the active funds that even survived, probably 90% of all the funds that existed, and that's pre-tax. You'd probably be at 95% or so on an after-tax basis. So... When you take a look at because that's a risk story, and you've helped educate our listeners for years on on the risk story of saying that well, smaller companies have more risk than larger mm -hmm. companies, therefore you're compensated for that risk. Um, and well, you're compensated for it. It's important, Joe, to add you're compensated with, for it, as I'm sure you know. But for your listeners to make sure, not with higher returns but higher expected returns. And that's the same thing about stocks, that people invest in stocks, not because they have higher returns, because they have higher expected returns. And you could go a decade, as the S&P did from 2000 to 2009, and lose 1% a year right. while T-bills were maybe earning two. So you had a negative equity risk premium of maybe 3% a year. And the same thing is true with small and value stocks. They can underperform for very long times as well. And that must be true because otherwise there'd be no risk and there'd be no risk premium. So you have to be prepared to accept long periods and stay the course. So, all right, looking at that and say uh, uh, no, more and more people I think are, I wouldn't say more and more, I, I would say a few. I um, mean, the market is more intelligent today than I would I guess maybe 20 years ago. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think not only are investors more intelligent because more of them are moving to passive investing, about 1% a year, uh, playing uh, the game 
that we know as active investing. Uh, 1% of them every year are abandoning it. So, yes, I would say they are getting smarter, but it's a slow trend at only 1% a year. And the other uh, problem uh, is that or the other issue supporting your uh, story of that the market itself is getting smarter is it's getting more efficient because the academics keep discovering the secret sources of the great investors like Warren Buffett and giving us the keys. So we now know that Buffett achieved his great returns not because he was a great stock picker. In fact, there's a paper called uh, Buffett's Alpha, which shows if you bought an index of stocks with these characteristics of both value and what economists call quality, so they tend to have low financial leverage, uh, low operating leverage, uh, low volatility of their earnings, if you bought an index of those stocks, you did just as well as Warren Buffett's public holdings. So the market is getting smarter, and it's getting harder to outperform the market itself because the academics publish the research, and then everyone gets to access those characteristics, uh, making the market more efficient. Less, you know, you can't buy stocks that are too cheap anymore because everyone knows about them and. The good news is, is all your clients get to invest the same way Warren Buffett did without having to pay active managers or hedge funds to get those returns. Well, and, and I guess to lead more into this is that because they're the market and investors are getting more intelligent, do you think these risk premiums would ever go away because they that, that, that would drive pricing because of demand going into those particular areas? Well, so let's think about that. Uh, it's a great question. It's a very logical. So we know about the equity risk premium, right, Joe? Yeah. We know that stocks have higher expected returns. Everybody knows that, right? Should the equity risk premium go away? What's the answer for, to that question? I, I hope not. Never, right? No. No, it, it shouldn't because <laughs> if it went away, investors would say, there's no premium here. Why would I invest? and they will choose to avoid stocks. So there has to be an expectation of higher returns, which is why stocks today still trade at, let's call it, 16%, uh, 16 times this year's earnings, unlike the fools who wrote the book Dow 36,000, who were telling people the Dow should go to 36,000 and trade at 100 times earnings because there is no risk in stocks if you just hold them long enough. Well, investors are much smarter than that. Everyone's aware of the equity risk premium, but they know that years like 2008 can happen and there was no guarantee we would get out of them. So here's the short answer. If there is a risk story behind these premiums, which we have talked about, then yes, as more people pile into it, just like as more people invest in stocks today than did in the 1940s and 50s because people were scared uh, to invest because of the history of the Great Depression was in their memories, well, then the equity risk premium falls and P.E. ratios come down, but they should never, uh, valuation should never go high enough that the equity risk premium should disappear. But the same thing is true for small and value stocks. As more people discover that there's these factors, well, money could come piling in, but if, they, if small stocks got driven up to valuations that they had the same expected returns as large stocks, no one in their yeah, right mind, insanity, would invest in them. So the premiums should still persist. 
as long as there's a risk story there. Hey, Larry, we got to take a quick break. Um, I want you for another segment. I want to talk about forecasts and how well um, some of the best minds, and I guess in our business, um, do when they come to forecasting. I also want to talk about uh, the dividend story. You know, let's get into high dividend paying stocks. I know you always sure. like like to get into that. So uh, don't go anywhere. All We're right. talking to Larry Swedro, folks. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Now back to Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joe Anderson, certified financial planner. I got Larry Swedro online, good friend, one of the smartest men in finance. And uh, we have the pleasure uh, once a month to get him on our show uh, to discuss kind of what's going on in the world and the markets. Larry, great to have you, my friend. My pleasure being back. Hey, you know, I think the last time we talked was January, or maybe it was like in the beginning of February. And of course, um, you know, the market had the worst January of the history of the stock market. And I think a lot of people were freaking out. First half of January. Sure. Oh, 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 was it just around in the second half? (laughs) (laughs) But I think the low, I mean, it hit about down 11 or 12 percent, didn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah. And the first two weeks, uh, first 10 days of trading were the worst first 10 days of a January in history, as you stated. And then uh, the market or the, the quarter ends and um, the, the U.S. markets were up. And one of the largest yeah. performing asset classes was emerging markets. And um, I don't think yeah. anyone called that. Not not only did anyone call, call it, but as you could guess, Joe, as you know, investors, investors were pulling money out in droves out of emerging markets uh, late in the year of uh, the prior years and the year before and early this year because investors are subject to recency and emerging markets had done relatively poorly over the last several years. And so people like to sell low. Uh, even though they know selling low is a dumb strategy, they like to buy after things have gone up when valuations are high and expected returns are now lower. Uh, and they, as if you could buy yesterday's returns when you and I know we can only buy tomorrow's returns. You know, and uh, it's, uh, the emerging markets were down double digits in the first two weeks. And I was at a conference uh, speaking as a keynote speaker. Uh, at an annual ETF conference uh, at the same time that Jeffrey Gunlock, who's a favorite of CNBC, highly respected money manager of Double Line Capital, one of the largest funds now, uh, certainly one of the largest bond-type funds in the world. Uh, and Gunlock is a very, very smart guy, and, and people listen. And in January 25th, uh, you know, he told people that emerging markets could collapse and if you were going to do anything you should go short uh through yesterday the market from the time he said that uh, now emerging market uh, vanguard's etf was up over 20 percent uh since then so it's a good example of why you should ignore all forecasters number one and why the right strategy is ignore the you know ups and downs of the market uh and if anything be a rebalancer, which means you're going to buy when everyone else is panicked and selling. You know, it's we can talk about that and talk about it and talk about it, but it's difficult because of the behavior of individual investors. And I think the behavior now, and I'm sure a lot of your clients um, are, are looking for some form of um, income strategy, right? Because you have 10,000 baby right. boomers, you know, turning 65. You know the statistics. And this whole... Um, 
I want a, a, a high dividend income um, paying strategy. And I think people get confused mm-hmm. that a dividend is like a coupon with when it comes to a bond, but they're, they're two uh, totally separate. Into, I mean, they're, they're two totally different types of securities. Can, let, let, let's talk a little bit about what the pros and cons are, are or, or more or less, why shouldn't people try to frame their foundation of their investment strategy in retirement on a high dividend paying stock strategy? Well, I've written about 10 pieces on this subject on my blog at ETF.com. So any of your listeners want to go and learn more about this, you can go to ETF.com. There's a a tab called Sections, and if you go to Index Investor Corner, and then you'll see all of the blogs that I've written. You can just look for the ones that have dividend in the name. But here's a really simple way to think about it. I was just having a debate uh, today with a client uh, who was saying, Larry, but hey, I, over the years, I've uh, got these dividends and I reinvested them and I got more stock. And, you know, so I got this compound return. And I said, let me show you how wrongheaded that thinking is. So let's assume that the, uh, that, that company, instead of paying you the dividend, never paid it. All right. Yep. Now, all you did when you paid the div- when they when you got the dividend, you took it and bought shares in the company. Your investment is exactly the same, all right? Because the stock price drops by the amount of the dividend because a company must be worth less by the amount of cash it just paid out. The stock drops. So if the stock was at 100 and you get a dollar dividend, it's now 99. You buy you know that one, the 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 shares at 99, and your investments back up to 100 again, and so you're no different than me. I own the same company, if you will, that never paid a dividend. The only difference is you got paid the dividend, and you paid a capital, you paid yeah, a tax. income tax on it. All right, and we're in exactly the same pace, but you got 15% less because you paid that, or maybe as high as 23.8 in the highest brackets. Um, you know, you paid the tax on the dividend. It makes no sense. Economic theory, financial theory, it's called finance 101, if you want, is that dividend policy should not matter. And the academic research shows that stocks that have, say, the same price-earnings ratio have exactly the same returns whether you pay a dividend or not. And as Warren Buffett said, by the way, he said, I don't pay dividends in Berkshire Hathaway. And if you want a dividend, just create your own. Just sell some shares. That's better. Buffett knows. Dumb for him to take a dividend. Why does he want to pay taxes on them? Let's let it continue to grow inside the firm. Um. <laughs> Very simple stuff. If you need the dividend, sell some shares. The company, by the way, uh, has excess cash and it doesn't need to, you know, uh, can't find good investments, then what it should do is buy back the stock instead of paying a dividend because now that pushes the stock price up. There are less shares. Uh, okay, outstanding. And now what happens is you, in effect, if, you know, get that in uh, that if you have to sell stock to generate cash flow, you only pay a tax on the portion of the amount that you took that was a gain. Right. When you get the dividend, you pay a tax on the full amount. So it makes no sense for investors who are taxable. Uh, much better if companies never pay dividends uh, and instead always use the cash to buy back the shares. Unless they thought the stock was for some reason overvalued, then they could 
make a distribution and return your capital. Uh, so, but really, people's focus on dividends is a purely psychological one. Here's what I hear the most, Joe. When the market's down, right. I don't have to sell stock to generate the cash, right? I'm getting my dividends. No. The company, in effect, sold stock for you in the form of that dividend. They could have kept that cash, and the stock price would have been higher. You just sold and taking the dividend. That's exactly the way that you should think about it. You're disinvesting in the company. It's only your choice of the companies. That's all. But either way, you have disinvested. Your, your, your equity investment in that stock is now less by the amount of the dividend. And, but uh, th- that's the the point. But I think most people don't get it. They think it's like a bond in a yep. sense, right? If uh, hey, I have a, yep. a, a right a three percent dividend, right? So I'm going to get the three percent on the share price. Right. Versus no, it's it's not a bond. You are an equity owner of the company. So if the company goes down and loses money, you're going to lose too. Or if it gains money, yep. you will gain. Versus a bond is a contractual right. agreement. So. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, they're just returning your own capital to you. And that, what people don't understand uh, is, is that fact. Now, here's why that happens. Let's say you got a stock trading at $50 a share and they pay a $0.12 cent dividend. Well, you can't see it in the price. The stock price might have even gone up that day. But it would have gone up if, if you're paying, a, say, a, you know, a $0.12 cent dividend. It would have gone up by $0.12 cents more than it went up that day. <laughs> right? right. Uh, if it hadn't paid the dividend. That's what they don't understand. So the noise of the market hides what's going on with the dividend. So with all of these strategies, ETFs um, that are coming out and some packaged products, you know, high dividend, um, you know, you're just going to invest in high dividend comp- or, or paying companies. Um, do you think that's all marketing? Uh, I know it's all marketing. There's no rationale for it from a financial perspective, either in theory or from the evidence, as we said. Uh, And by the way, it's actually a really dumb strategy in my mind now because you've got what we know as a crowded trade. By that, I mean the zero interest rate policy of the Federal Reserve has pushed people who take this cash flow approach to abandon safe bonds and buy anything with yield in it and whether it's risky or not so they're buying junk bonds and they're buying dividend paying stocks right and taking that yield and thinking of it as coupon as you said no you're buying a very risky asset which if we get another year like 08 could drop 40 or 50 percent quite easily uh, unlike the treasury bond with that same two percent coupon uh, so, but what's happened, uh, Joe, is this crowded trade, this money rushing in. Div- companies that were high dividend payers, so paying today the average dividend, say, is 2%, so a high dividends may be paying 3% or more. The stocks that used to be high dividend payers used to be really value companies, and value companies had higher returns for the reasons that we talked about. They had a high yield relative to price because the price was the stress because it was a risky company. Now these same companies look more like growth stocks because everyone has been buying them up. So now their expected returns are much worse. So you've got all of the risk of these stocks, but you're not getting the same expected premium you used to get historically. It's become, in my mind, a very dumb strategy. Larry, I kept you way too long. 
Um, I appreciate your time. A wealth, a wealth of knowledge. Hopefully, um, all of our listeners now have a better understanding of what the heck they should do with their money. Uh, that's Larry Swedro. Larry, thank you so much for everything. Um, we will hopefully get back with you uh, next month. We got to take another break. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner. Alan Klopine, CPA. Thanks for joining the show today. Um, go to our podcast, if you would. If you like the show, you want to learn more, listen more, listen often. If you just caught it, go to our podcast at iTunes. You can download the app right there. Subscribe. You can write a little note to Big Al if you like him. <laughs> yeah, you know, please, I had the weirdest dream the other day. You did. You and I were walking down the street, and then we ran into a big group of people. Okay. And then they're like, oh, there's Big Al. There's Big Al. And you didn't get any recognition. Nothing. There's Joel. <laughs> the last time that happened to us in public, you got recognition too, because we did the Bay Bridge run, and we were just standing there with some of our coworkers, because a bunch of us did it, and someone came running up to us and just kind of tapped us and said, I love your TV show, and then went running away. Sunday mornings, tomorrow morning, 6.30. Yeah, that's right. What are we talking about tomorrow? Well, 529 plans. Uh, could be. Well, we got to wrap this thing up here. And um, What do you want to teach our listeners before we leave for this Father's Day weekend? Well, I opened the show with uh, some tips from uh, dads, and I guess I do want to wish a very happy uh, Father's Day to the dads listening. Uh, and to my dad, uh, Robert Clopine, he's uh, he's up in the desert right now. But I guess what what I'd like what would I like to teach right now? I would like to talk about the role of income taxes and income tax planning when it comes to retirement. So Be look at this. Yeah. When you're taking distribution, the rule of thumb: if people were going to the internet and they would say, "All right, well, here I need to start taking distributions." And we've talked about the severity of secrets of returns, of when markets are volatile, when you're taking money from the portfolio without a plan. Right. Another way to help with the volatility of the overall portfolio is when you look at taxation of the portfolio, right? Because you have three different pools, hopefully, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, we talk about tax diversification. So you want money in tax-free accounts, taxable accounts, tax-deferred accounts. But what is the rule of thumb in the industry? What's accounts? If you were to Google withdrawal strategies, what would they tell you to pull first? Uh, they would tell you to pull from your non-taxable accounts. In other words, maybe your, your savings account, right? right. To, in other words, defer, defer your IRA, defer your 401k as long as you can. Don't pay tax until you absolutely need to. Right. So your taxable accounts or your non-qualified accounts, mm -hmm. your brokerage account, savings account, deplete those. Let the deferred money grow. Yeah. And I've got the, the traditional way of thinking is based upon the mantra of deferring taxes for as long as possible, but that may not always be the most tax-efficient manner. Exactly, because it's like, all right, I'm deferring all this money to a later date, right? So let me deplete the other assets first, pay very little in tax, and then I'm deferring, and then when I'm out of those assets, or when I turn 70 and a half, that's when I'll start tapping into the retirement accounts. Right. And then leave your Roth IRA accounts to the very, very end. I don't know what we're, I think that's just ridiculous because you're, what's happening is that you're blowing a huge opportunity to utilize certain tax brackets. Now, if you don't, if you have a hundred thousand bucks, then yes, sure. But if you're like most of our listeners that have accumulated wealth, that you have money in retirement accounts, you have money outside of retirement accounts, you probably have very little money in Roth accounts. There's a better way to do this because where do you think tax rates are going to go? 
in every dollar that you're deferring, potentially you're going to be taxed at a higher rate, um, depending on how much other income that you have and what your required minimum distribution is going to be. Yeah, so think about it this way. You probably have money in retirement accounts. Most of you do. IRA, 401k, maybe 403b. That is taxable when you pull those dollars out. You probably have money outside of retirement accounts. We call those non-qualified accounts. And depending upon how you have those assets invested, uh, either for growth or qualified dividends, those get taxed at the capital gain rate, which is a lot cheaper than the regular tax rates. And hopefully, you've got some money in a Roth IRA. Hopefully, you've been listening to the show. You've done Roth contributions. You've done Roth conversions. And that money comes out tax-free. So how about this? If you're recently retired in a low bracket, instead of spending your savings and staying in a super low bracket, I mean, I'm okay with spending the savings to live, but why not do a Roth conversion to fill up that 15% bracket? Maybe for some of you filling up the 25% bracket? Because you know what? At 70 and a half, you have to take the money out. And if you have a lot of money accumulated in these accounts, you're going to be in a very high tax bracket anyway. So in other words, you're prepaying some of the tax while it's on sale. You have to pay the tax on it, right? It's probably a good way to look at it. Now, you get money into a Roth IRA, you turn 70 and a half, you have your required distributions. Now you got money in all three pools. So let's pull out enough from your IRA 401k to maybe stay in the 15% bracket or stay in the 25% bracket. And let's pull the rest out of your savings or maybe your non-qualified investments. Maybe they've gone up in value, you pay capital gains tax, or maybe you've had a position earlier in the year that you sold at a loss. And so that loss nets against the gain. So you don't pay any tax on that. Then you take money out of your Roth IRA. You pay no tax on that as well. I mean, it's huge because if you can save money in taxes, right, then you can take less risk in the portfolio. Taking less risk in the portfolio is going to help with the volatility of the overall portfolio, right? Common sense. You want less volatility in the overall portfolio when you're taking distributions because it's the sequence of return risk that we've been talking about. Just a few stats here and, and to, to kind of end the show is that there's things going on in the world today that I'm telling you that, you know, that are not great and that are somewhat frightening. I'm not here to put fear. I think I want to educate to say, all right, if you think that the, the state of the markets, where are you going to go? And if you don't have a strategy, I would encourage you to get one, right? Alan, I, I, I was talking to him before the show had been started about some of these stats. And then Alan just signed up for his free five-point retirement master plan <laughs> after that. <laughs> yeah, I want to see what you're going to tell me. Well, I, okay, well, I think the, the British, right, the fifth largest world economy will vote next week to either stay in the EU or get the heck out. Well, it's probably going to take a few years for that to happen, but that could have some effects here in the U.S. markets. Sure could. All right, the ECB is now purchasing corporate bonds in addition to its 800-plus billion euros of government bonds it's already bought since 2015 in order to stimulate their struggling economy. So they're not doing very well, right? The German 10-year bond hit an all-time low recently, yielding a negative return. So now we're in negative interest rate environments in Germany. The yield of the U.S. Treasury 10-year note dropped another 2% on Thursday to yield 1.564 in a flight to safety. Oil is down 13%. Gold rallied 7%. So what does that tell you? People are freaking out. Let's get the gold bugs out. And then the average mutual fund manager is carrying 5.7% in cash, which is higher than in 2008. Why are they doing that? They are anticipating the liquidity needs when all individuals, not our listeners, when, when people freak out, they need cash, right? So they're getting money out. These are not all great things. We've had a bull market since 2009. The markets are up well over 200%. 
three out of 10 years, the market's down. So just know, just statistically, that the markets are going to do something. Just make sure that you're prepared. Don't be scared. Don't be frightened. Just be warned that you need to make sure that you understand what's going to happen to your specific portfolio when this does happen. It might not happen for another five years. Who knows? But when it does happen, you want to make sure that there's no surprises in your portfolio. If you want any of our help, you can always find us at our website at purefinancial.com. Go to Pure Financial. You can uh, ask us a, a question. If you want a portfolio review, whatever that you want, we're here to help you. Um, stay tuned next week because we got a lot more to discuss in the world of finance. Happy Father's Day weekend, everyone. For Big L Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. You just listening to... What? Your money, your wealth. Right here on AM 760 KFMB.